Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm your host, Megan Reardon Jervis, and I am sitting down with someone who it is just an incredible honor to be here. I put this up on my Instagram recently. She wrote a book that is like way, I have chills just talking about it, way at the top, top, tippy top of, you know, my grief stack of special, informative, sing your song, holy texts. So Amanda held Opal, thank you so much for being here today. Megan, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, thank you. We were just talking off mic for a second and I sort of like laughingly said, you know, doing this podcast, it's part of my grief work. It's Mm -hmm. part of, but I have to tell you your book, Hole in the World. I cried a lot when I was reading this book and Mm -hmm. I mean that as like a thank you, you know, that, that being able to read someone else's words and story written the way it is written and it pulls at your own heartstrings is Mm -hmm. like such a spiritual event. And I, I really want to, I want to ask you to talk about the book and maybe even we'll read a couple of segments from the book, but I I just want to, can you just let people know how you kind of come into this world where you are writing a book about grief and loss? Gosh, if you had told me four years ago that I'd be writing a book about grief and loss, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Like I I had no idea that this was going to be part of my story. I was actually working on another book proposal, completely unrelated But yeah, very surprisingly, surprising because I had had such an easy life. I am now recognizing that I had had this very trauma-free, stable growing up experience and, you know, challenges here and there, but, but, but nothing kind of catastrophic. I looked at like, you know, these kind of tragic deaths or early deaths or losses as something that happened to other people, right? And suddenly there was like a three-year period where I, I just a lot of people that were dear to me died. And, you know, I, I had my grandmother passed away quite suddenly when I was on a work trip in Congo, couldn't make it back for her funeral. My, I had three pregnancy losses after a season of infertility. And then probably the, the, the atom bomb that really went off in my life was when my, my sister, who was my only sibling, died very suddenly. She was young. She was healthy. She had a three-year-old and an 11-month-old. And that was that my big before and after moment of like, uh, okay, life is really different now. And so just in my kind of processing of what all had happened and transpired, I, I started just studying about how people in the past and around the world have grieved because I felt like I didn't have a lot of the tools that I needed to actually grieve and, and, and understand what was happening to me. And I, I, I guess I'm, I'm interested in history. I find it fascinating. I find it interesting. I find it strange. And so it was kind of this beautiful rabbit trail of grief that I went down that not, not only just helped me acclimate to my new reality, it helped educate me on what was happening in my life. And So I put the other book proposal aside and said to my agent, like COVID-19 was raging at that time. And I just thought there's so much grief and death all around us. Would there be any benefit to maybe writing this book instead? And she said, well, give it a shot and see, because, you know, grief books are not that easy to publish. Like, (laughs) 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, and, and so here, here we are, the book just kind of came, came to be, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to, to write it. And I'm grateful for what I learned in the writing of it. So I, I write, I run this little grief writing workshop on my grief is my side hustle platform. And I'm always talking to the writers about writing for process versus writing for product. Mm. And so, because, because the, the action of, of grieving, the moving, the energy through the body requires the, the newness of us, right? Like I, I, this is going to sound like a tangent for a second, but in trauma work, often what we talk about is like, you know, when you have had something terrible happen, we need to be careful not to make a whole lot of sudden moves. Mm, you yes. Like cut your hair, leave your husband and move to Arizona, except when you have had profound loss, you don't, there's no bearings. Yeah. So staying still is like almost as dangerous and disorienting as like, I, you know, what my family did, which is like driving to Montana. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm curious about like, what was the writing for you? You were a writer before, so you had, and, and you have that under your belt, but was it a, did you know you were writing for product? Had it started as process? Were you, you know, that fresh grief where we're just trying to figure out how the hell the earth is still tilting on its access when yeah. this event has happened? Yeah. Well, I knew that I didn't want to undertake this journey of writing if it wasn't going to facilitate some level of, of, of healing for me. And so I think it, what initially began as me just kind of journaling, I mean, I'm not a huge journaler, which I kind of admit with some embarrassment to be a writer, but not really a journaler. I, I'm not a huge journaler, but once, once these events started happening, I remember thinking to myself, there, your fibers are being reformed in this moment. And you are going to want to look back when you're 80 years old, you're going to want to look back and, and, and be able to see how this unfolded in some way in your life. And so you need to just, you just need a word vomit at the end of the day. And, and, and so that you have this kind of altar, if you will, or this memorial of how this all happened. And so what began is just kind of my personal journaling, you know, then eventually kind of morphed and, and, and coalesced with what I was learning about these grief rituals. And so that's, I, I think that's how the process worked for me. And, and the way that I, that my process for writing the book was really, I mean, it was just such a, it sounds strange to say that a book about grief was a joy to write, but creatively it was a joy because it was just like, I, I basically just picked 12 strange rituals and said, I'm going to read everything I can get my hands on about this ritual, wearing black or, you know, tolling the bell. And I just, I'm just going to let it speak to me and I'm going to let it kind of work its way into my imagination and, and see what it teaches me about grief. And then I'm going to write that down and see what happens. And, you know, I'm as an artistic person who's done a lot of songwriting and short form writing, I'm not one of those like, oh, the muse will just descend upon you and yeah, speak to job. you. It is a job. It is labor. You got to show up to it. It's rigorous. It's, it requires a lot of discipline and you throw out 90%. And I actually feel like in a lot of ways, this book was one of those kind of mystical experiences of just being given to me. 
And I'll, I will always treasure that because I don't think it'll ever happen again. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, again, as someone who read it, I mean, I read it and then I reread sections of it. It, it, it does feel like, like, how the hell did she do that? Like, how the hell did you pull through like working in foreign countries and, and foreign aid miscarriages, traditions from, you know, Celtic Ireland, like it just, it threads together in this way that, you know, feels like, wow, you must have a beautiful mind in there. But I also found it really relatable. Like the part that you talk about now I'm ter- I'm not a historian. So I, is it Queen Victoria who starts the morning yeah. clothing? Mm-hmm. I mean, I had one of those, and I think most grievers know this, like friends who took me out to lunch. And now when I look back at that, I'm like, oh boy, that was a hella crazy lunch. <laughs> I was like ranting like a, you know, crazy person about like, why didn't we wear black anymore? And why yeah. didn't we, because I'd had this experience in the grocery store where I couldn't remember the name of something like watermelon. I couldn't remember the name of it. Yeah. And the way the person in the grocery store was responding to me makes sense. I was, it was annoying and I seemed annoying to him, but I swear if I had been dressed in all black, he would have approached me differently. And so I went down sort of this rabbit hole of like, when did we stop doing that? What did that mean? I mean, I was learning all about the different levels and the things. And I just, you know, I understand, I understand so much about sort of like the illness of grief, but I Mm -hmm. think it's, you know, it's Cecil Day Lewis who says, you know, we, we read to be understood. And so Mm -hmm. there's something about even watching how your mind wanted to know, wanted the handrails of the rituals. Do you have a favorite one? Do you have one that you, when you were writing it, you were like, God, I just love this one. Yeah. Well, I think I, I really love the ritual of telling the bees only because my, my husband is a beekeeper. And so it was, it, I got to interview him, you know, for that chapter and just like, you know, why, why do you think they did this and did the bees understand? And so, you know, for those who haven't read the book, the ritual is just this belief that if you, if someone in the household dies, you have to go and tell, and you're a beekeeper, you have to go tell the the bees and tell the beehives who has died and what's happened or the superstition is that they'll fly away or they'll die too. And I think it just, for me, it just revealed just the, the precarity of life and that it helped me perceive, okay, I, I do, I am living with this residual fear now. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, no one ever told me grief felt so much like fear, which I love. And, and, and so it's like, what, what are we, these superstitions are so interesting to me, these superstitions around death, because death used to be so much of a mystery. We kind of have a handle on the physicality of death now. Like we have germ theory. We can give a reason why people die, time of death, cause of death, but the existential nature of mortality is still so mysterious. And I, I don't think we're willing to admit that we think because we have the science figured out that we have the metaphysics figured out and we don't, there's so much mystery and people used to kind of name their mystery. They used to own it and, and, and not be ashamed of the mystery. And these little superstitions of fear around, well, if I don't do this, I'll be the next to die. Or if I don't do this, I'll lose my livelihood too. Everything's falling apart these superstitions to me were just kind of a practice of agency in some way. When you feel like everything's spinning out of control, there's one thing I can do to kind of, I don't know, control something, something's going to be okay. I'm going to go tell the bees. I'm going to cover the mirrors. 
you know, I'm going to open the window. I'm going to stop the clocks and just, you're like fighting for your own life in some way to just not let everything shatter. And there was something about that as sad and hard as that is to study about that just, I recognized myself in it. I recognized my emotional experience in it. And so some of the superstitions that I think we would never practice again today were some of my favorites. Oh, I love that. Did you happen to see the Queen's Beekeeper during this week? Did you? Oh, you know, I did because like, yeah, about a thousand uh, people sent it, sent you like a a week ago, my phone just started like blowing up. Like I just kept, kept buzzing. I kept getting messages on all my different platforms. I'm like, what is going on? And it's like, oh, they told the Royal Bees that the queen died and everyone's like, I knew what that was because of your book. So I'm hoping it has a bit of a a resurgence in culture. There's two pieces that feel really important to me, but I want to say this because we didn't really openly say it, that your sister who died Mm -hmm. so young, was she 40 when Uh, she was 37? Oh my God. 37 with her tiny babies was also, is it fair to say a spiritually curious leader? Yes. It's a beautiful way to describe her actually. Yeah. And that, and that friends of mine sort of pointed me to her text just before she died. So I was just following her and, you know, coming to know about her questioning of traditional Christianity. And, and I think part of, so I just want to say that for the folks who don't know that, that, that you had a a public private loss that is part of the text. And I want to ask some questions about what is that like to lose someone alongside yeah. thousands and thousands of other people, whether I am curious about what that feels like, but I also just want to thread these two pieces together that part of the gift of what your of what your book gives us is that inexact curiosity and pain that many people feel myself included around the spiritual organization of your life. Mm-hmm. when there is a like unbearable tragedy. Yeah. It's very hard. I, I think there are people who hold on to their faith and their religion and, mm-hmm. you know, like, like it's holding them together. And I think there are many, many other people who think what, wait a minute, this yeah. can't be the way this goes down. And the chapter about the bees for me, which is, it is, it, it may be my favorite is both about you're sort of letting us see who you and your husband and your family are as people, Hmm. but also that connection that we have to like the earth, Mm -hmm. you know, like humans on the earth, like you, you tell us about what it means to have bees swarm. I mean, it's got this little, like Richard, Richard Attenborough nature documentary to it about, you know, why do bees need to be told and how sensitive they are and Mm -hmm. how hives fail and how, and, and it, it adds a layer that I think sometimes like, it's a very spiritual chapter to me because it does the same thing. I think that people mean to do when they are talking about the mysticism of whatever God's way might be, which mm-hmm. we will never fully understand. We will also never fully understand why the hive failed. Yeah. But yeah. Swarmed. Yeah. So I, th- I'm, I want to ask about for you, you know, what was it like to lose a sister, mm-hmm. your sister, who is also loved and beloved mm-hmm. by yeah. so many people as someone who was not, you know, not teaching them how to scrub their sinks more sparkly, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. teaching them how to find themselves in 
you know, a spiritual journey yeah. and, you know, and then we're also in grief and loss on that spiritual journey. Yeah. Yeah. You know, losing someone who was a public figure. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember the moment when someone like forwarded me, like Hillary Clinton tweeted about your sister's death. Like, and it's, it was like in that moment, we all knew my whole family knew what an impact and an influence she had, but we were not fully aware of the scope. And I think, I think the reason people took Rachel's loss so deeply, why they felt it so deeply was just her realness and her authenticity. She did, she was not the kind of quote unquote influencer type. She was just, she was a brilliant writer, a great thinker, but as real as they come. And, and, you know, I I think sometimes what would it have been like to be grieving her if you knew that the person people thought they knew was not the real her, you know, well, that was really just a face that she, and, and I can say with just a lot of confidence that she was who she was, we were, we were grieving the same person, but we were grieving her in different ways. And that actually felt really beautiful and important to note, you know, and there were moments, I mean, it was both a, it was both hard and a gift. You know, there were times where I was just like, I wish this was just more private or I wish that people would quit saying like, Oh, I will miss her tweets on Twitter. It's like, well, I wish that was all I missed, you know, but at the same time, I would say the gift of it eclipsed the difficulty of it because people were so kind to, I think, center her family, even as they spoke about her loss, we got letters and cards from around the world And I think a lot of people, when they lose someone they love, they may think like, oh, I wish the world could just know how wonderful my loved one was. And in many ways, we have the gift of knowing that the world did see and the world was able to experience her. But, you know, just from the spirituality component, I mean, I love I, I love that you connected with the chapter on the bees. And I've often wondered, like, why I I've derived a lot of comfort from from scripture from my sacred text of, of the religion that I hold to, even though I've learned to read it differently, <laughs> which right. we can maybe talk about there later, but I've also derived so much comfort in just being in nature. And I've, I've tried to kind of understand why that is. And I think there's something about death that really introduces us to our creatureliness, if that makes sense, that we, we are still we are creatures. We are natural beings. And just like the leaves are turning right now, as I'm looking out my window and about to fall off their branches in death, like we wither and die. Like that's a natural part of what it means to be a creature on this planet. Mm -hmm. And I think because we are so advanced technologically and philosophically and social. we just think we can kind of bypass that or outsmart that. Like we, we are always trying to outsmart our creatureliness and we cannot, like <laughs> we are made of material things that don't last forever. And so that just kind of being reintroduced to that has been both hard and beautiful. And so being in nature around other things that die and age and wither has actually been really helpful and healing for me too. I was thinking when I was reading about the traditions, some of, some of which I knew and some of which I had never heard of. So again, I just, you know, even just if you're vaguely interested in the historical and anthropological component of things, the book is such a gorgeous read on 
but but really it is there's there isn't a page i think that isn't infused with some element of like deep spiritual connection and i think part of what i found comforting about learning about the traditions is that forever and ever and this is the way i feel about judaism i was raised in christianity but mm. my christianity has the old testament and you know mm. Judaism has been around forever and their traditions around grief and loss have really not changed much. Yeah. And, and you write about them and they are, they are tried and true. And the notion that people covered mirrors and stopped clocks and rang bells and told the bees just it, I have chills when I'm saying it now, because it feels like the smallness of this moment is connected to the bigness of it all. Yeah. Which I think is what we're looking for in spirituality, right? Is like that existential aloneness because, because grieving and it drives me batshit when people are like, no, you're not alone, but you, you really are alone. Yes. Because you're the only person that has lost this particular relationship that yes, you are alone. And so when people when people say what they think is comforting, they're actually like accidentally minimizing. Yes. Yes. I think it's Jan Richardson who says that grief (sighs) is piercingly particular. And she says, no one knows what it's like to live with your specific shattering. And so there's something, yes, there's something about like when someone says, I know what you're going through. There's something about like, okay, it's good to know that other people have been shattered, but it, it has to be framed. I think with that, just, just essential caveat of like, no, I, I don't actually understand. I know something. So what I've started to say to people is like, I don't know exactly what you're going through, what your experience is like, but I know a little bit about this road, or I've walked a road that's similar to this and just, just kind of frame it in that way. And I've noticed that actually resonates with people more because everyone recognizes what you just had the, the courage to say. Well, and you, you do a really nice job about this. You're really generous in a way that I think other people sometimes can't be about when people want to talk to you, they, you know, they, they have had a loss and they come and instead of showing up for your loss, you're really now receiving the story of their loss. And that, you know, everyone says like, don't do that. And of course don't do that. But, but the difficulty I think is when you are still filled with your own filled to the top with your own unresolved grief, Mm -hmm. listening to Anderson Cooper, he has a new podcast, which you might know. And yeah, um, it's so, it's really poignant. Uh, You know, he's just like letting you listen to his experience of cleaning out his mother's apartment. Yeah. And at one point he comes to like a box of stuff and he had a brother who died by suicide in his twenties and his dad died when he was, I think 10. And so he comes to a box that has the things and you can hear him get really emotional, Mm. like, because that's what it is. We're carrying our grief all the time. And it's, it's like anything else. Like, how are you managing your grief? Yeah. And one thing that people talk about is like, oh, only grievers know how to show up. And in my experience, and people don't always love when I say this, like grievers can be the worst Yeah. because yeah. they do stuff like this. They come in and they, and, and by the way, I want to be super clear. I did this. Like I, yeah, I have same. a friend who I did this too. At, her mother died shortly after my mom. And I just, I mean, I, I had like a meta, I could see myself doing it and I couldn't yeah. stop. But I, but I think part of if we, if like, 
we just sort of like understood this, that part of what happens is you are overwhelmed with your own emotion and you are not going to do a great job and you are going to show up to another griever and you are going to ask them to hold your emotional garbage and they shouldn't be asked to do that, to understand that actually that is part of grief. That is, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's awful, but it's part of grief. It's not even like a problem that we're supposed to solve. It is part of the process, the same way that like you wake up and you forget for a minute because yeah. it hasn't fully integrated the information. So you wake up in the morning and you have 12 seconds where you don't remember they died. That yeah. is a part of grief. It's awful. Yeah. yeah but it's right. part of grief. Yeah. Yeah. And which is why I didn't realize what wisdom it was at the time. But when my friend Hannah, you know, what was it three months after my sister died? I'm obviously still in the thick of it. Like, why am I on a disaster response trip? I don't know, because this is how I was coping. Girl. <laughs> My husband was like, you, you, this is a little bit messed up that you went to a disaster zone to try to cope with your sister's loss. <laughs> on point to me. Makes <laughs> right. It's like, what, go but, close, go close you know, to all the feelings. Yeah. Like we're there on at the Bahamas right after yeah. Hurricane Dorian. And she says like, I just want you to know, I, I lost my sister too. And it was, you know, 10 years ago almost. And it was really hard. And I just want you to know that, you know, this is hard. And there are other people that are going through something similar. And you're basically, she was like, you're going to make it, but I know it's really hard. And so what the gift of that moment was not, she, she didn't give me her burden to bear. Like she was far enough down the, the road that she had developed some skills for carrying her grief. And so she didn't need to unload on me. She just needed to kind of tutor me. And I, I, I'm curious, I would love to get your thoughts on this, Megan, because this is a, this is something I have struggled with is I think people are so afraid now of saying the wrong thing that they won't say anything at all. And, and not only that, like I actually, I know we're not supposed to give advice and I know we're not supposed to give pithy, like trite, like everything happens for a reason and God won't give you any more than you can handle. And all those crazy things people say, I think that like what I was really hungry for though, was a grief mentor. Like no one, no one gave me any advice for like three or four months or something. And, and just something about Hannah saying to me, like, you're, you're going to be okay. Just a little word. Like I don't, and, and I think I wrote about this in the book too. My, my boss, who's been all over the world, war zones, just experienced all kinds of grief. And all he said was, God is going to help you. Like yeah. you will receive help along the way. And I love what he, he did not provide a theological treatise or systematic theology that I needed to somehow absorb and integrate. It was just simple truth, like breadcrumbs. But I, I feel like we're so afraid now of saying the wrong thing that no one even gives the breadcrumbs. So I don't know, like, what's the balance there of like not trying to school someone in grief, but also offering wisdom and mentorship in for the new griever? You are, you are asking, I think, the most important question that I have not, I don't have the answer to because I don't have anybody's answers, right? Like, even the advice that I give are just guesses, they're just educated guesses. Yeah. But I do really feel like there's a whole bunch of shit that's out there in the world. that's awkward, including talking to your kid about their changing body at age 11 and, Mm -hmm. you know, having to have a conversation about like 
why adults get divorced or, you know, why that person is in jail or why that person is on the street asking for money. Or so I feel like the instinct when something is awkward to recoil is natural. And then, and then, and we have to push through. And, and the ridiculous example that I use all the time is sex, Hmm. early physical connection, whether you start making out with someone when you're 14 or you wait until you're 25 is awkward. It's awkward when you're dating again at 60, it's all awkward, but no one has ever suggested that because it's awkward, they should stop. Yeah. Right. Because they know that there's the benefit of connection, like pleasure filled connection, hopefully on the other side. Yeah. So I actually use that language, like body Mm. language. A lot of what I do is teach about what's going on in the body, but I also talk about it from a trauma perspective, which is when, when people are left alone, children in particular are left alone with their feelings and those feelings have nowhere to go. How they feel becomes who they are. Hmm. And most of us have some little shards, splinters of trauma. And yeah. so that's what I say, what you are risking by not calling, not checking in, not what you are risking is that person is over there turning into how they feel uh, someone who can't connect with others, someone and isolation is so big in grief. And so what I say is like, look, use, use the idea of consent. Like if you're yeah. not person who typically stops by this person's house, don't start that now. Yeah. yeah. Not authentic, but send them a text. I would love to stop by. Yeah. Because I yeah. know, can I do that? And, and when I'm talking to grievers, I'm also saying, I know your hands, your body is covered in your feelings. And actually everyone who loves you would not want you to take on one more second of yeah. any other feeling and you will. And that is normal. Yeah, that's right. But some of what's happening, like some of your friends are distancing, but some of your friends distance when you got married, some of them distance when you went to college, some of them distance when you had a baby. So yes, it's doubling down in the pain and you don't deserve that. And it's also kind of normal. Yeah. yeah so that's as right. much as a griever can say, like one thing that I, and I thought of this so many times in your book. So my mom was deeply Catholic. She went to mass all the time. All of her friends were from this little church charity shop that she worked at, you know, Mondays and Thursdays, the, and they all looked alike. And, you know, they just, yeah, this little 70 year old lady and every single one of them said the same thing. Your mother is in heaven now with your father. Mm. And it brutalized me. It was like, they took out a weapon, a baseball bat with nails and hit it with me every time, because what I would not give to believe that my mother believed that. Yeah. And I said to my husband, like, I don't know what to do with this. And he was like, he said, well, listen, they're not aware that it is hurting you. Yeah. So you can decide to never see them again, which is what I think a lot of us do when we get hurt. Avoid. Or you can just tell them. So that's what I did. You know, I, I am sort of like a, you know, let's just bang through this together. So these tiny little old ladies, I would say, I, I know you mean that with love. I know you believe that my mother believed that, but unfortunately, like that doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a story that I don't know about her? Yeah. So I, so I sort of led with the, like, I know you mean well, but having said all that, 
when I was sitting in my own pain, when I was really sick, when I had PTSD, I found people excruciatingly painful. Mm. Everything that they did to be flawed and to be pain. And, and again, with the conversation of people around me, there was a, there was a sort of like, maybe it is better that you stick to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It is better that, and, and again, I don't use mine as typical grief because I, you know, grief is not like a mental health problem. It's not, it's not a, it's not a problem to be solved. It's a thing that we have to learn to go through, but mine became a mental health problem. So mine is not always the best example, but my experience with it was that when I was deep in the early emotions of it, I wanted people to care. I wanted them to ask. I wanted them to say, I see you. And then I wanted them to leave me alone. I I totally understand that because in some ways it feels safer to be alone, but it also does not feel safe to be alone. That's (laughs) right. It's both of those feelings. And I mean, I, I think I, I am, it helps that so much of my community are aid workers because they are kind of accustomed to these like jarring, like, Oh, life is painful, you know? And they, they, and they still somehow managed to, to remain beautifully astonished with me. (laughs) This had happened to me. And I really appreciated that, but they also had worked through enough deconstruction of what you think is true about the goodness of life and the goodness of humanity and the before and afters, like they had all been living maybe in the rubble of, of some of these former, either former belief systems or just trite platitudes that the world gives us. They, they had all been deconstructed for these people already. And so they knew how to sit with me in the confusion and they knew how to not just give these palliative type of responses. Like, let me try to make you feel better. They were comfortable enough with pain to let me sit in it without trying to answer it or fix it or solve it. And so I think in some ways, those friendships were what allowed me to transform my experience into maybe an offering for the world in this book. I don't think I could have had, I don't think, I think I would have been driven to the end of myself (laughs) had I been surrounded by some of these, like you said, more kind of trite platitudes around this. Well, and I, so you may have circled on to the actual answer, which is that we would all do better, you, me, and everyone who's listening to be a person who endeavors to show up without fixing to, you know, we use these therapy language, you know, the therapy language of like holding space and all that. But really what it means is just do not be uncomfortable in your own body to the degree that you can't let someone have their own emotional experience. Yes. I really think that is, if I, you know, I don't know how many of these I've done a couple hundred and, and I've been working in grief and loss for 20 years. I mean, there are some things that are true, like getting outside in nature and exercise and sun and eating food that has, that it has actual nutrients in it. That's just true. Like that is good for grief. It's good for life, but it's really good for grief because we want the body to be able to like do what it needs to do rest and restore. Because when we're in too much of our feeling our feelings will generate our thoughts. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm overwhelmed with sadness or anger or frustration, a lot of things don't seem possible. Mm -hmm. And when I can bring some of the intensity of that down, 
connection, you know, restoration, whatever it is, feels more possible. And you go, you kind of undulate through that, I think. But most people have also said the people who can sit near me, yeah, just let me be. And I, I've shared this story before, but right after my mom died very quickly, I had this thought that became sort of the root of the PTSD, which was that it was my fault that she died. And I have a mm. lot of understanding about why that thought was there. But every time I said it out loud, people would be like, it's not your fault. Yeah. And I had my roommate, I mean, sort of out of, I think divine grace happened to be with me at the time, which was not my roommate from like my twenties running around mm. DC. And that wasn't a given. It was an odd thing that she happened to be close by. And she came over a few hours after my mom had died and we were walking and I was like, I need you to let me fucking say this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I knew she would, cause she's also a social worker. And I said, like, I, I feel like it is my fault. That mm. is mine. I am holding that. No one can yeah. take it. And yeah. what she said, and I'll never forget the grace of it. She said, I am really sorry that that is what you have to have right yeah. now. I'm sorry that that is, you are holding that pain and I'm not going to take it from you. Yeah. And I'm I was not, like, yes. Yeah. I mean, don't, I don't don't right after that. Like, okay, just let me have this feeling. I, you know, yeah. I have a rational part that knows it's not true. My mom was older, you know, I didn't stick a sword in her, but this is the way it feels. Yes. Like don't, in some ways it's, I think it steals people's dignity, like the the dignity of their pain to try to, you know, palliate it or make it go away or, 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 or try to even to soothe it. It's just like, no, you just, you need to like respect the pain, allow it to be. And I, I think that's why I keep being drawn over and over again. It's, you know, this, it's a biblical concept of hope. Like hope is so different than optimism to me. Like optimism is like, everything's fine. Brighter tomorrow's like the sun will come out tomorrow, you know, feel better, you know, hashtag blessed, the good life, all of those things. Whereas I think hope, hope is this thing that just holds on to what is true. It finds those, those those few things in life. I mean, cause I, I think at the end of the day, there are, there are a few things in life that are true. <laughs> it's like a light that guides you to those few important, essential things that are true and not, not to make you feel better, but to help you survive. And that's what I think my, the goodness of what my friends brought to me was, was hope, not optimism, not and not everything's going to be fine, but just, there are some things that are true and they will help you survive, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was such a, that was such a beautiful experience for me and my grief. My, my friend, the writer, Jessica Faith Kantrowitz writes, it will not always feel this way. Yes. And I, you know, again, like sort of the part of me that knows neuroscience and knows how bodies work and know like that is the most hopeful thing to me, mm-hmm. which is that the way that you feel is not a fact. Yeah. And it's important, but it's not the only important thing. And I, what it's making me think of is this, I, I think I said it to you before we off mic, before we started recording, I couldn't sit still. Like I couldn't sit still. When my mom mm-hmm. died, I felt like there had been a hurricane inside my house and most of it was broken, but I didn't yeah. have the energy or the heart to like start to sort through the pieces. And I just wanted to like leave the house, sell it, burn yeah. it down and start yeah. there. But I, but I, also really believe 
that we minimize some of that. Like, I think there are people who don't want to move. They just want to sit still. You know, my dad died of cancer and that was less traumatic. We knew that was happening. And I kind of like doubled down, you know, like painted the house, felt really rooted. But when my mom died, I felt crazy. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I was a little crazy and I couldn't become Mm -hmm. what I needed to become. Yeah. Space that had held me as a, as a different version of me. I grow this part to manage the grief. Yeah. I needed to do it away. And I, we got in the car, it was just early COVID and drove across the country. But I won't ever forget standing in the Badlands. And I, first of all, the people know me, like, I don't know geography. I don't know where anything is. I'm from New England. I was like, this is good enough. I didn't know what the Badlands were. I thought they were going to look like, I thought it was going to be like tumbleweeds and sort of like a ghost town. I didn't understand that it looked like the surface of another planet. Yeah. Yeah. So when I got there, I was like, what the hell is this? You know, you (laughs) see these, these formations start to rise out of the ground. And when I, when I stepped outside, like the temperature was different, there was dust in the air that I'd never smelled or tasted before. And I was like, oh my God, this is changing me. I've never done this before. I am becoming who I need to become. And the notion that like, I could imagine the dinosaurs there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was like the littleness of me and the bigness of this that everyone is a griever. Everyone will become a griever. Everyone is born and then they die. And that this park has been visited by bazillions of people. And there's a reason for that. There was, it felt like the thing that the, the church that I grew up in was very clear that like, there wasn't God in church that you brought God to church. Mm. And I really felt like, no, God is here. Yeah. Like God is here at the Badlands. And yeah. I just plugged my cell phone into the charger. Like, yeah. no. And I think we are craving because it, you know, somebody texted me during the Queen's, my husband is English and somebody texted me during the Queen's procession through London which was really surreal. I don't know if you watched it, but it was, you know, yeah. these huge crowds, but they were silent. Yeah. Something about the silence that was really like surreal. And she said, can you imagine if someone had had a service like this for your mom? And mm. I was like, yes, I can. Yeah. I w- if someone offered it to me tomorrow, I would do it tomorrow. Yes. Yes. I would dress in the red coats. I would be with the horses and the corgis. Yeah. That's how big everyone's grief feels. It's true. Yes. We don't yeah. put on that kind of pomp, and, but that's how it feels. That right. the Taj Mahal, which was built because he lost his, that's how big it feels. It's yeah. that big. Yeah. There's something about physically experiencing what you are, the story that's inside. Like I, and now as we're talking, I'm like, maybe this is why I went to a disaster zone. Three months after my sister died, as I went onto Abaco Island and saw boats and trees and houses flattened and debris on the road and nothing. I mean, I'd actually been to Abaco in my younger years and I was like, this is, this it's, it's been wiped off the map. And it, it felt, I felt like I belonged there in some strange way. Like, this is what my life looks like. You know, this is what, this is what's kind of going on internally yeah. inside of me. And there was just something, I recognize the landscape in a strange way. 
Exactly. I recognize the landscape. It matches. I mean, this is, it's a bit of a non sequitur, but I work with people because I'm in DC. I work with people who are part of, you know, security agencies and all the things that run our countries and people who have worked in war zones. And it's fascinating to hear how many of them are, are experiencing on normal every day, walking down the street, a really high amount of anxiety, mm-hmm. but feel very comfortable in downtown Baghdad. Yeah feel like at and it's because the landscape on the outside matches their landscape on the inside and That's they right. feel less insane i think yeah and right. and when my family went on this big trip that is what i wanted i wanted wide open spaces i wanted vast beauty that was ancient and old i just wanted the like whole hmm. that was inside of me, not to borrow from your title, but <laughs> I, I wanted it reflected back to me. And yeah. it was very, very difficult to have people who knew me to be someone who buttoned all the buttons on her sweater and was able to put full sentences together and wasn't right. mean, you know, I yeah. felt really mean. Again, I was really struck by how gracious, gracious your, your book was because I, I, I really struggled with how angry I was at not, not the injustice of my mom dying. She was an old lady. I was just angry that everyone else didn't have that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, like what, well, oh, to be like someone who's just worried that, you know, their, their kids spilled their juice on the carpet or, you know, like to have that, but you, I know I came maybe across as a bit, you know, calm and serene in my book but you do recall I wrote about throwing a broom at my husband's head at one point in anger like I do I'm not trying to make you sound like a saint at all (laughs) oh and he does not deserve it my goodness what a sweet man well it's funny in my memoir I just handed it in for copy edits and my editor Zibby Owens who's like a fairy godmother read it called me and said all kinds of lovely things and she was like but I'm not publishing this unless you dedicate it to your husband because mm. and I was like oh I know why because you know chapter after chapter is me is him catching the yeah. you know, being on the receiving end of my dysregulated feelings and you know what can I do about that is it going to mortify you if I read just a little bit from your book because I've shown it to you already but like it is <laughs> you know like, I will not be mortified. And I, I would well, be I've had a couple of people who were like, oh my God, I can't do that. And I was like, what's wrong with you? And then I did a, re- a class for someone and they read my stuff back to me. And I was like, oh, I get it. It's awful. It feels, you know, it's really hard. I have a couple of paragraphs that I just think are the most gorgeous writing about grief I have ever read. So this is on page 41 and it's in covering mirrors and it's, it's halfway down the page. So it wasn't just that my behavior changed. My worldview began to shift truths. I want once held dear, no longer seemed reliable. My theology felt shaky. Faith narratives began to give way under the weight of so much bewilderment in many ways. When it came to my beliefs about God and myself and the world, I felt like I was starting from scratch. Minuscule doubts became colossal. Tiny uncertainties transformed into monsters. Grief is like water. It follows gravity. This is going to make me cry. It finds the lowest part of you and hollows it out even more. It exploits your weaknesses. Grief goes where it wants, with or without an invitation. It seeps into the empty spaces. It cannot be harnessed or redirected. 
at least not easily. It branches out from the headwaters of the main event into hundreds of tributaries. Few areas of your life remain untouched. New losses are discovered almost daily. Life progresses without one you love in it and you miss them all over again with every new season and every turn in the road. I just, I want people to read the book because there are, there are hundreds of paragraphs that are that beautifully poignant. And that one makes me cry because when I was driving through Montana and I have written about this and published this, we crossed the continental divide. And again, as I have before attested, I don't know geography. I didn't even know what it was. My (laughs) husband, who's not even American is like, you know, to the kids, like who knows what the continental divide is. And I was like, I was (laughs) not me at Lopes in fourth grade geography. I have no idea what this is. So they ran into a gas station. I was like, what is the continental divide? You know, we barely had signal. And, and you may know, and most people probably know, but the continental divide is where the water shifts. Yeah. It's where it used to run to one shoreline. And for whatever fucking magical reason on the planet, it shifts and it runs to another shore because of gravity and because of mysticism and because of things I'll never understand. And we don't even really know. There's yeah. like around five. And to me, I was like, that's what my mother's death is. My mother's death is my continental divide. Mm. My water ran this way and it runs this way now. And I got to learn this territory and I got to understand it is not a problem, but it's a fact and it is painful. So the description of this, just, I was like, yes, that is Mm. exactly perfect and exactly how it feels. I know I have to let you go, which I do not want to do, but <laughs> you have to be respectful of your time. Where are you now in your, in your journey? Cause you've got a, you've got sort of the same number of years under your belt about ish that I do. And I'm just yeah. curious, you know, I know you're not ever going to stop grieving. I know it's the life yeah. events, but I'm just curious, like, are you writing more or did you find your theology back and you're all <laughs> healed like oh yep ship shape everything's good (laughs) no I you know I really I I listened to your podcast I appreciate you interviewed was it Dr. Gina Moffa like who was you interviewed some where I felt like I listened to this just recently and I felt like it kind of gave me permission for the first time not to grieve so I've I spent my whole book trying to convince people it's important to grieve it's important to make space for this my, my baby was seven months old when my sister died and I had another baby less than two years later. And so I, I recognize that my grief, because people will sometimes say, well, have you really taken some time for yourself? And they're almost chiding me. And I'm like, I know I hear that. I get it. I get it. But I'm also trying to survive and really show up for the people who need me. My parents' health aren't great. I'm an only child now. Like, and so just I think there is a grace in saying, Amanda, like when you're 45 in 10 years, in right. 20 years, like this grief will still be here. You can tend to it for the rest of your life. You don't need to rush it. You don't, cause there's no end goal. There's no, like, let me get here and then it'll be fine. That's right. so it's not like I've got to make up time or like, you know, hit the pedal to the metal in terms of processing to get where I need to go. And so I am 
slowly meandering my way through processing what I've lost. And I've, I've, I know in my bones, that's okay. But hearing you two say that on your podcast as professionals, I, I appreciate. And I will say I would, I like most people who grew up as a person of faith, I am, I am rebuilding some of the things that I thought were true that I'm not, I'm not so sure are true, but I am enjoying being reintroduced to God, to scripture, to faith communities, to the Bible, to religion, all of these things. I'm enjoying being reintroduced to them now as a person who has suffered loss and as a person who knows that life is precarious and it has enriched in that way, it's enriched my faith because what I think a lot of people misconceive about the God of the Bible is that he's this kind of just mighty, holy, unfeeling God. And, and that leads us to think we don't have permission to feel our emotions. And it turns out as I read through the Bible as a griever, I actually meet a very emotional God, a God with a lot of feelings, a God who loves his people and is hurt when his people leave hurt when his people hurt. He's angry. He has regret. He has sorrow. He has joy, all of these things. And so to kind of meet God as a griever has actually been a beautiful thing for, Mm -hmm. for my, it's transformed the faith of my upbringing. And I'm sure people, no matter what their religious background are, they, they relive it now as a new person. And that's its own journey, you know? God, that's so gorgeous. And what it reminds me is that again, when you suffer profound loss, you are internally changed forever. And so it makes sense that you would have to come back to all your relationships, your relationship to faith, your, you know, I've talked on this podcast about my marriage is really different. My work is different, but it really makes sense to me that as a griever, as who you are, you have to come back into the rituals and the texts and the relationship and sort of almost like re-sign up you know, yes. re each other, re re-register for life, you know, yeah, renegotiate it. And I think that's, again, you know, one of the things I always want to say to people is like, there's a lot of hope to be had in the process of grieving that, you know, what you listen to me say with Gina is there is no one right way. People often yeah. call me, there's a loss and they call me and I'm like, this is not when we do the work. This is when we drink the tea and we take yeah. the nap. It's like the grief work is three months out for the rest of your life. The early stuff is the early stuff. And there's a lot of wisdom in however you show up and, you know, you have hard fought babies in your life that Mm want to, you know, it's hard to be around babies grieving. They're, you know, you're so excited to see a duck. (laughs) You're so excited to see a duck. Like death is real. What, who cares about a duck? You know, like. You're right. But in some ways they tether you to the world. They tether you to life and all of its beautiful experiences. And I think they, I think they have insisted that I find joy where I can. And in some ways that's been a gift too. So will you be writing again? I'm really just asking that because I like need to know when I'm going to get more words. You know, is that even if it's songwriting, even if it's songwriting, Amanda, what, what else? Yeah. Can I, and if the answer is no, then I'm going to know that that is the right thing. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. I so appreciate it. No, I did. I wrote an, an album of, of songs or six songs, a six song project of songs that kind of accompany the book. And so that's just finished up and been released, but I, I am. Yeah. So you can find me on 
Spotify, YouTube. That's out there. Okay. We'll put, we'll link that in the show notes. I didn't even, I don't know. Yeah. So I I wrote a song for six of the rituals. Mm -hmm. I was going to do 12, but you know, life, it's a lot of work. Um, So maybe I'll, maybe I'll write part two later, but so I've done that and I am working on a second book that, you know, I said that I feel like this first book was kind of given to me, like it just descended upon me. Not so with Not the so. second book. <laughs> yeah, there's the ones. My the memoir has been my memoir has been a you know act of grief and love, and then the other one feels like a really long term paper that I somehow decided that I was going to do. It's so. like I I just want to find every author out there in the world and say thank you for your labor. Like it yes. is so much work, that, and and I feel so privileged to be able to do it. So I don't want to complain, but my goodness, it is it is hard. It's a yeah. it is a ton of work. I totally, somebody asked me the other day, they were like, how many times do you think you've read your book all the way through? And I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to tell you. And they were like, don't tell me. And I was like, like 60. I've read it yeah. 60 times and it's not even wild. It's 60. wild. So yeah. And, and like, not cause I love it so much. Cause like, that's how much work it takes. Yeah. You, and we're you not do. even in the, we're not even in line edits yet. Yes. So. Yeah. So, so I'm working on, on, on another book and we'll keep you updated on it. <laughs> it has been a real joy to talk to you, which again, sounds perverse when we're talking about grief and loss. I really am personally really deeply grateful that, you know, yeah. I, I know what it's like to have somebody write to you and say your words were meaningful because it creates meaning. It creates, yeah. and then the thing that has been so hard suddenly is connected to all the things of the other people and the rest mm-hmm. of the world. I bought a ton of copies of this book. I've given it to everyone I know in the oh, thank you. world and I've told them, you know, you got to read this book and you're going to love this book. So I have a hunch that we're going to keep hearing you talking about this, that this is my, you know, that's my hope is that this is going to be one of those books that's at the top of people's mm-hmm. stacks. And I am of course, incredibly sorry for your loss. It feels like some kind of way to know that you existed at the time that I learned of your sister's death. And then to be mm-hmm. able to share the learning and the love and the story with you now, is just really I'm really grateful for it. The, the world is such a weird place. And if you asked me five years ago, what would you be doing now? I can tell you it would not be in a room under my stairs like Harry Potter <laughs> in a podcast about all the sad things that happen to people. That- well, I, I wouldn't have been listening to your podcast five years ago, you know what I mean? But I wish I had, you know what I mean? Like, I wish I'd been prepared. And I think that's my kind of my big advocacy is like, hey, you might not think grief is coming for you, but it is coming for you. Listen Everyone you love will die. Very and, easy way to do it. You don't even yeah. have to read a book. You can just get an audible and listen. Yeah, that's right. So I really yeah. hope we stay connected. I'm going to go Thank listen you. to your album. I'm really grateful for your time today. And I'm really grateful for the gift of a whole in the world. Everything that everybody needs about it will be in the show notes. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, if you can go over in Apple podcasts and just give us a rating stars and write a review that helps everybody find the podcast. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. And Megan, it's been great talking to you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. We'll, we will, we will stay in touch.